Hello again, everybody. This is Krishna Basar again with another episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Uh, so after some time off the air, I decided to do another episode in the Strategic Thoughts series. And the Strategic Thoughts series, of course, is consisting of uh, consists of episodes dealing with military, geopolitics, and strategic studies. Uh, so today what we'll be looking at is Russia's intervention in Syria, in the Syrian civil war since 2015. So I'll be talking about some of the rationale uh, behind the intervention, and some of the implications or perhaps some of the results, without straying a bit too much into predictions, because predictions can be very complicated and very hard to make. The Russian Federation's entry into the Syrian civil war on the side of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad on September 30th, 2015, has arguably been one of the most important turning points in the conflict, which has been raging since 2011. Not only did Russia's involvement save the Syrian government from potential collapse, but Moscow was willing and able to flex its muscles abroad and project power. Until 2015, much of the world's recent concerns and coverage about Russia had focused on events in Ukraine since the Euromaidan. Russia had long been a major power, but its intervention in Syria, a significant mission outside of Russia's immediate neighborhood, made the Kremlin's role in world politics impossible to ignore. Moscow's relationship with Syria did not begin, of course, in 2015. In his January 1956 address to the Communist Party of the Soviet Union's 20th Party Congress, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev praised Syria as one of, it, one of the countries which he believed were standing for peace and resisting the old colonial order. Since World War II's end, the Soviet Union had had an ally in the socialist, anti-imperialist, Ba'athist movement. Ba'athism was a Syrian Arab nationalist movement and ideology, and which had also become the primary home for Arab nationalists outside of Syria. The Soviet Union's support of foreign socialists was consistent with its United Front policy, which was meant to push back against capitalism and imperialism across the world. However, the Soviet Union's uh, relationship with Middle Eastern movements went beyond mere ideology. A manifestation of this was the Kremlin's long-term relationship with Egypt, which began in September 1955. This was after Egypt's president, Abdel Nasser, turned to the communist world through a Soviet Union-sponsored arms deal with Czechoslovakia. As with the Egyptians, one of the Soviet Union's first Cold War interactions with Syria was the conclusion of an arms deal in January 1956. The establishment of official Soviet-Syrian diplomatic relations followed in August of that year. To demonstrate this new cooperation, the Kremlin deployed two naval vessels to the Syrian port city of Latakia in October 1957. In response to American fears of Syria turning into a, quote, Soviet satellite, Syria's defense minister, Khaled el-Azim, emphasized his country's non-aligned stance. Non-alignment non was a popular movement in many of um, in much around the in in a lot of countries around the world, of course you had capitalist countries like the United States, Canada, uh, Great Britain, and so on, and you had the communist bloc, the Soviet Union, and uh, the Warsaw Pact, 
but also you had a lot of countries going kind of a what they called the third world or kind of in a non-alignment movement where you did they didn't want to fully take sides with one or the other so syria is an it was in an interesting position with um because there was arab nationalism and also you had baathism too which was a socialist but non-communist movement so the soviet union was uh, was willing to support socialist movements even if they weren't fully fully communist, right? So you did have Syria kind of putting itself into the non-aligned camp, <laughs> if we can call non-aligned a camp. However, Syria's defense minister Khaled El-Azim also believed that the United States was forcing Syria to choose between the new, quote, Amer quote new American imperialism and the communist world especially after the Suez Canal crisis. Throughout the Cold War period, the USSR sent advisors and millions worth of infrastructural aid to Syria in exchange for political concession, such as the stipulation that a communist had to be a Syrian cabinet minister. And for decades after the initial arms deal in 1956, Syria continued to be a key Soviet weapons buyer especially after its devastating defeats at the hands of Israel in the wars during the wars of 1967 and 1973. The Cold War turned the Mediterranean Sea into a theater of competition between communist and capitalist military might, and Syria was a part of this game. In April 1957, the American Navy de deployed its sixth fleet to the Mediterranean in response to a political crisis in Jordan. In uh, commenting on this, a. A. Koryakovtsev and S. L. Tashlikov, historians from the Military Academy of the Russian Federation Armed Forces General Staff, called the Sixth Fleet the most dangerous threat to the Soviet Union's southwestern flank, considering the fleet's nuclear missile-armed submarines. A decade after the Sixth Fleet's deployment, in, on June 14, 1967, the Soviet military issued Naval Command Order Number 0195 in the aftermath of the Six Days' War. Order number 0195 created the 5th Escadra, or Squadron, which over time came to include between 35 and 60 ships, such as minesweepers, troop ships, intelligence gathering vessels, and even two aircraft carriers, the Minsk and the Kiev. The 5th Escadra docked at ports in Egypt and Algeria, as well as at Syria's and Latakia and Tartus, the latter of which included a repair ship. With its submarines and troop ships, the squadron would be able to force the United States to reconsider actions in the region, thus becoming an instrument of deterrence. Showing the Mediterranean's importance in Soviet strategy, American intelligence estimated that between 1965 and 1970, the Soviet Navy had spent an annual average of about 10,150 ship days there, compared to only 4,500 in the Atlantic Ocean. As mentioned, the 5th Escadra was deployed just after the Six Days' War between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Israel was an important factor in Soviet interest in the Middle East, for in socialist or communist circles, Israel was perceived as a Western-aligned Western state. However, despite the 5th Escadra's presence and billions worth of arms sales to Syria, in many ways the USSR showed restraint in the Middle East. The Soviet leadership closely watched the Arab-Israeli wars and largely kept Soviet forces out of the conflict zone, except for anti-aircraft crews in 1973. 
The Soviet Union feared the possibility of getting into a direct conflict with Israel and therefore also with the United States. The USSR also helped broker resolutions 242 and 338 at the United Nations Security Council to curb Arab-Israeli conflict. While anti-imperialist ideology and countering the West regarding Israel motivated significant Soviet support of uh, Syria and other Arab states, this only went so far, certainly not to the point of risking direct war with the United States. In 1976, Egyptian President Abdel Nasser's successor, Anwar Sadat, wished to take a more pro-Western direction, which led him to cancel a Soviet-Egyptian Treaty of Friendship from 1971. Sadat also expelled Soviet military personnel from his country. So with the loss of Egypt, Syria now became the Soviet Union's quote-unquote linchpin for influence in the Middle East, according to Aidid Dawisha. A new friendship treaty between the Soviet Union and the Syrian state was signed in 1980, whose articles, among other things, called on the signatories to increase their defense capacity, quote-unquote, and counter any perceived threats to peace. The Soviet-Syrian Treaty of Friendship and Cooperation was originally meant to last until the year 2000. Though the Soviet Union had dissolved in 1991, its successor, the Russian Federation, continued to sell weapons to the Soviet-equipped Syrian military, which relied on Russian replacements, ammunition, and parts. Russia also supported Syria in other ways. In 1996, Russia called on Israel to return the Golan Heights to Syria, which had been annexed during the Six Days War. And before Russia got directly involved in the Syrian civil war, in 2012, both it and China vetoed UN sanctions against the Syrian government. On August 26, 2015, Russia and Syria signed a new agreement, which committed the Russian Federation to a role in the Syrian conflict beyond diplomatic measures. The, and this is the name of the agreement. The agreement between the Russian Federation and Syrian Arab Republic on the deployment of an aviation group of the armed forces of the Russian Federation on the territory of the Syrian Arab Republic. This agreement is explicitly mentioned the 1980 Soviet-Syrian Treaty of Friendship, and by it, Russia would deploy an Air Force unit at Kamaimim Air Force Base, located on Syria's Mediterranean coast, between the ports of Latakia and Tartus. Both countries had the right to change or renounce the agreement, but it would otherwise last indefinitely, quote-unquote. Russia's war in Syria started in earnest on September 30th, 2015, with the first of many airstrikes against opponents of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's government. Russia's military intervention in Syria started on September 30, 2015, with the first of many airstrikes against opponents of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's government. By mid-November, approximately 70 Russian warplanes had been stationed in Syria, which the Russian Ministry of Defense reported carrying out an average of 127 daily sorties. Naval assets were also used to fire Calibre cruise missiles at enemy targets from the Mediterranean and Caspian Seas. And, just like the Soviet 5th Escadra, Russian ships were being harbored at Tartus and Latakia. Khomeimim Air Force Base and the ports of Latakia and Tartus afforded Russia a great military advantage. Being stationed at bases that were close to the front lines, Russian forces could easily support Assad's armies. 
So now let's go into some of the reasons for Russia's support of the Syrian government during the Civil War. Uh, so a primary reason for the Russian intervention starting in 2015 was the fear of, of regime change or chaos resulting from the destruction of the status, status quo. Uh, considering international involvement in Syria, the rise of the Islamic State, and the losses that the Syrian military was suffering at the time, it appeared that Bashar al-Assad's government could fall. The Kremlin recalled the chaos resulting from Western regime change wars in Iraq, 2003, and Libya of 2011. The Iraq war had deposed America's longtime enemy, Saddam Hussein, but an insurgency grew out of the resulting situation, which eventually allowed the Islamic State to gain power and threaten both Iraq and Syria. And although NATO achieved its mission of removing Muammar Gaddafi from power in Libya, the country eventually devolved again into a state of civil war, hardly the fortress of democracy, which was the campaign's original intention back in 2011. The Russian government has seen these failures and blamed the West for the current crises in those countries which American or Western foreign policy has targeted. If the Assad government fell, Russia worried that a, the leaderless country could then split into different factions and the Islamic, Islamic State, perhaps, could even hypothetically take over in the resulting chaos. In 2013-2014, the Euromaidan movement protested Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych's cancellation of a planned economic agreement with the European Union and his signing of one with Russia. According to the Russian government, the unrest and Yanukovych's eventual ouster was a Western regime change um, operation against a former Soviet state and Russian neighbor. The late Republican Senator John McCain's per personal visit and words of support to the Euromaidan protesters only seemed to confirm anxieties that the Kremlin had expressed. A civil war soon erupted between the new pro-Western government in Kiev and the pro-Russian self-declared Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics in the east. In 2014 and 2015, two agreements, known as the Minsk Protocols, established a ceasefire in eastern Ukraine, but many of its articles, such as Ukraine's political decentralization, have been slow to be implemented. This situation, not to mention uh, Crimea, the, the situation surrounding Crimea, has led to a hostile stalemate between the Russian and Western-supported Ukrainian government. And also, a proper analysis of Russian-Western tensions since the Cold War would require much more than, than can be included in this, in this podcast episode. However, it's necessary to state that, that so-called regime change policy and support of Ukraine's post-Euromaidan movement are two major areas of disagreement which Russia has with the West. Running parallel to these concerns, the Kremlin has been anxious about NATO's post-Cold War expansion towards Russia's borders. Considering regime change and the deadlock between pro-Western and pro-Russian forces in Ukraine, Moscow had an option in 2015, military intervention in Syria. As already mentioned, this campaign would help Russia preserve the status quo vis-a-vis -vis the Syrian government, preventing the chaos resulting from Assad's hypothetical collapse. According to Ruslan Pukov, 
director of the Moscow-based think tank Center for Analysis of Strategies and Technologies, or CAST, the military situation in Syria had somewhat stabilized by September 2015, making it safer for Russian forces to deploy there and consolidate Bashar al-Assad's position. But it was also an opportunity to counter the West, which for years had been actively supporting anti-Assad forces. Unlike the Western countries intervening in Syria, Russian forces actually had legal permission to act there, as the Russian-Syrian agreement of August 2015 showed. And it's interesting to note that Russian forces deployed anti-air missiles to defend their air bases and naval facilities in Syria, though the country's opposition and extremist forces never had significant air assets. They never had fighter jets and so on. They did have um, drones that, that, could, that have attacked um, Russian bases in the past uh, in Syria, but certainly not to the extent of any Western power would have. Another Russian-Syrian agreement in 2017 allowed Russia to expand its warfighting capabilities in Syria. In addition to allowing the Russian Navy to harbor up to 11 ships in the Tartus port and expand facilities there, this agreement extended Russia's lease on Tartus by another 49 years, until 2066. Russian forces may also use the Khmimim and Latakia air bases rent-free. These arrangements have given Russia a naval base and airfields from where it can preserve its interests for a long time after the current Syrian civil war will most likely certainly be resolved somehow. Contrary to Western wishes, Russia is in Syria for the long term. On its website and YouTube channel, the Russian Ministry of Defense has often referred to the Syrian campaign to be a battle against terrorism. This leads to another interesting aspect of the Russian intervention. Despite sharp and potentially dangerous disagreements between Russia and the West on various issues, especially when it comes to military deployments, Russia has often promoted cooperation with the West in countering extremist violence. The Kremlin has some reason to try and make this argument, as terrorists have attacked both Russia and the Western world, most notably during ongoing insurgencies in certain parts of Russia and, of course, on 9-11-2001. For instance, in 2015, Alexander Darchiev, who was Russia's newly appointed ambassador to Canada, stated that Russia and Canada would simply have to, quote, agree to disagree, quote-unquote, on Ukraine. But he said that this did not mean that the two countries could not cooperate in other areas, including against terrorism. Ambassador Darchiev's words reflected how his government sees itself as a potential partner of the West in numerous areas, regardless of the state of mutual relations. Timothy J. Colton, an expert in Russian politics, has made an interesting observation about the Russian ambition to partner with the West. He observes that Russian President Vladimir Putin often uses the word partner, or partner in Russian, instead of ally, soyuznik in Russian, to describe the West. So Colton says these words about this. Partner signifies a more informal, more contingent and discretionary, and a less exclusive relationship, end quote. Partnerships are more flexible than alliances, as the partner label can be applied to countless goals or aspects of international relations while not being applied to others. This way, the Russian government can form multilateral relations between the United States, Canada, Europe, and then also China, 
and it may also be willing to cooperate with NATO in the Arctic and on the war against extremism in Syria, and yet show less compromise with regards to other issues, as the ambassador to Canada himself declared regarding Ukraine. The United States and its allies, however, have not been keen on Russia's attempts to be a partner. Many Western countries have fought against extremists such as the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and the Islamic State for nearly two decades since 9-11. However, the American-led war on terror, and it also led the United States to take aggressive action itself against Iraq in 2003, feeding Russian fears of quote-unquote Western masterminded regime change. Regime change. And more importantly, while it combated extremist forces in Iraq and Syria, the United States also supported anti-Assad militias. The American and Russian wars on terror have led them to take different geopolitical paths. The former, the American, fought terrorists and hoped to eventually topple the Syrian leadership. That, that was kind of a thing that was always in the, in the background. We, Assad has to go for this to work. But the latter war on terror, the Russian one, fought the Syrian opposition and terrorists with the hope of rebuilding the shattered country under a stable Assad-led government, at least initially. The Kremlin has said that a, quote, political solution is necessary, and it believes that this would not be possible if, if the Assad regime had fallen. Though the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda are common threats to both Russia and the West, there are different narratives about the two parallel missions against them. In a speech to the United Nations General Assembly on September 28, 2015, mere days before the Russian campaign started, Vladimir Putin chastised the West for supporting the, quote, so-called moderate opposition, when, according to the Russian government, these opposition groups were filled with extremists. In 2017, Alexander Bortenkov, the director of Russia's Federal Security Service, the FSB, gave an inter interview to Svobodnaya Pressa, when he alleged that the United States, quote, uses terrorism and flirts with it to, quote, destabilize nearby countries. Bortinkov pointed to the American invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, which supposedly helped international terrorism to spread and to grow. Because of the Taliban's collapse and more than a decade of war in the region, Russian, Chinese, and Iranian territory and interests had come under threat. The FSB head alleged that American support of the Syrian, quote, democratic forces had the same effect, recalling again the Russian government's views of American regime change operations. Bortenkov proposed an alternative to the American war on terror. He suggested that non-Western countries much, must use the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or the SCO, of which Russia is a member, to deal with the problem of international terrorism. By joining the Syrian civil war in 2015 on the side of the uh, Assad government, the Russians offered themselves an, as alternative security brokers. In helping to prevent, prevent Assad's removal, the Kremlin has become a major player in the conflict, allowing it to take, take part in ceasefire negotiations with other countries such as the United States, Turkey, and Jordan. Through such measures, Russia has hoped to bring about its desired political solutions to the Syrian conflict. On the ground, Russia and the United States have used deconfliction lines to notify the other side of their planned airstrikes and ask if the other country has assets in the vicinity of those proposed operations against terrorist and opposition forces.
Well, at one time, the deconfliction line was used 15 to 20 times per day between the American-led coalition's headquarters in Qatar and the Russian contingent at Khamaimim Air Force Base. This avenue of communication and coordination has become especially important as the American coalition's goal of defeating the Islamic State and Russia's other simultaneous goal of preserving the Syrian regime against opposition and extremists were both realized, increasing the possibility of a clash over shared interest zones. So these deconfliction lines became very, very important. In September 2017, Russian bombers fired cruise missiles at targets belonging to the Islamic State and an Al-Qaeda-affiliated group, which was then known as Jabhat al-Nusra. And these targets were situated near Deir ez-Zur, and this could have been a potential problem because American troops and the Syrian Democratic Forces, um, which was a U.S.-supported opposition group, they were in, in that area. So, and the Russian Ministry of Defense report on this airstrike said the following, quote, it is to be stressed that all the targets were located out of settlements and in a safe distance from strongholds of the U.S. Special Operations Forces and Syrian Democratic Forces in the ISIS-controlled territories. And ISIS, of course, being the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. It is not Russia's intention to attack the United States or its coalition NATO allies in Syria or vice versa. Nonetheless, Turkey's shootdown of a Russian Sukhoi 24 plane in November 2015 was a clear example that intense, complicated wars in somewhat small geographical areas such as Syria can lead to serious military accidents and geopolitical disasters. Despite these risks, the Syrian campaign has given Russia military benefits. For one, it has highlighted the success of Russia's military reforms since the war in Georgia in 2008. While that five-day conflict in 2008 ended in an eventual Russian victory, organizational and logistical deficiencies saw Russia's forces suffer significant losses. After Georgia, the Russian military was reformed with a more localized, decentralized command structure. According to analyst Dmitry Gorenberg, the Russian troops deployed in Syria have also not had supply problems since 2015, even though Russia's military supply and deployment infrastructure is primitive, being done primarily via railroad transportation across the Russian Federation. So Gorenberg was stressing that, that even though the system is primitive, the logistics are primitive, they, the troops in Syria haven't had significant supply problems. So this is pointing to uh, an improved situation within the Russian military since 2008. In September 2019, Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, gave an interview to Moskovsky Komsomolets in which he detailed some of the efforts to increase Russia's military readiness. He suggested that Syria helped this military reform process. In Syria, Russia was not fighting, quote, a bunch of fanatics and primitive militants, said the defense minister, but rather, quote, the largest terrorist organization of many thousands, or more exactly, a system. Shoigu mentioned these enemies' tanks, anti-aircraft missile systems, extensive supplies, and suicide bombers. The Islamic State, for example, had extensive international economic, recruitment, and propaganda systems. Infrastructures such as these, Shoigu said, allowed extremists to acquire $5 million per day through petroleum sales. 
The minister's point was that fighting the Syrian opposition required a significant effort on the part of the Russian military. He claimed that when one considers the flights performed by all the fighter, bomber, and transport pilots, practically 90%, he, quote, he said, of all of Russia's Air Force personnel were somehow involved in the Syria campaign. This figure does not include the work performed at Russia's Syrian air bases and the, port, and the ports of Tartus and Latakia, and of course the coordination that the operation would require at all command levels. The Syrian campaign also apparently provided the opportunity to test about 300 new weapon types and cold 12 others that were deemed unworthy of further use. Syria became a Russian testing site for new weapon systems in a real-world combat environment. First, smart or precision bombs are nothing new to, Western, to many Western militaries, but the Syrian war is the first conflict in which Russia has used them with significant success. More often, however, Russian airstrikes have used conventional gravity bombs in Syria, which are still very accurate with proper training. The Russian news agency TASS reported in June 2019 that sighting equipment used in Syria allowed pilots to use such standard weapons as, as a precision ordnance, with a reported deviation of only about 10 to 15 meters from a target. Pilots are now being trained with this equipment and experience. Secondly, the Russian forces have also used drone aircraft in Syria, which have helped with target acquisition. Thirdly, night vision equipment also allowed for 24-7 coverage for pro-Assad ground forces, and nighttime operations kept Russian pilots safer from enemy anti-air weapons. The ability of Russia's pilots to run around-the-clock operations also has a detrimental effect on the insurgents' morale, forcing them to deal with a lack of proper sleep. The number of sorties and constant mission readiness has shown the durability of the Russian forces, though some crashes have supposedly occurred because of harsh, harsh desert conditions and pilot fatigue. That is, another, um, that is another interesting aspect where there were some weapon systems that the Russian military was using, but in desert conditions they, they, the weapon became a little bit less effective. Uh, for, the climate is completely different. Uh, in, between Syria and in Russia. So, um, so little things that one might not think of at first, and so desert conditions, maybe temperature, maybe air pressure, something like that, could, could change something with a weapon system. So the using a weapon system in a desert environment, such as Syria, allowed weapons developers and the military to see, okay, this is how this works in a desert environment. We have to account for this because of the different climate. So that is one, one uh, other aspect of um, sort of fact-finding and, and weapons testing that, that uh, has been found during the Syrian mission. Finally, some analysts such as Catherine Harris and Frederick W. Kagan of the American-based Institute for the Study of War have said that due to combat recent ex recent combat experience, the Russian military has practiced a lot with a lot working with irregular militants such as Iranian militias fighting on the side of the Syrian government. Such experience is valuable valuable in conducting battles with unconventional forces and insurgents. Throughout the campaign, Russia was also active in an intelligence-sharing center with Syria, Iraq and Iran in order to coordinate airstrikes against the Islamic State. If the organization received intelligence about Islamic State movements in Iraq, Iraqi, for, Iraqi forces would be mobilized against them. If word was received about the Islamic State in Syria, however, 
the mission was passed on to the Russian Air Force. This experience not only helps Russian forces improve coordination with allies, but it also strengthens the Russian government's uh, narrative or idea of partnership in the fight against extremism. So what happens now? For the moment, Bashar al-Assad's government is relatively safe, and Russia's fears of regime change in Syria have been, have been averted. So Russia continues to uh, prop up Damascus with military support. And, but perhaps far more unpredictable is America's role in that of the, dare I say, mercurial President Donald Trump. American forces at one point were withdrawn from northern Syria, allowing federal, fellow NATO member Turkey to launch an offensive against the American-supported Kurdish-majority Syrian Democratic Forces, which Turkey sees as a terrorist threat. The United States has not completely left Syria, as its Special Forces mission in November 2019 against the Islamic State's leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi has emphasized especially. But uh, apparent American indifference towards the SDF after all the support and then withdrawal in the face of Turkey's assault indicates that the United States may have lost some interest in changing the regime, so to speak, in Syria. However, what will the new U.S. president do if the Democratic Party wins in the 2020 election? Will that new commander-in-chief take a harder line against Assad and Russia's involvement in the Middle East? Indeed, the future role of America in Syria is unclear. And <laughs> what's interesting is I wrote this, this last little bit in, uh, in November of 2019, but... Now we're in January 2020, and now we've had recent airstrikes against uh, General Soleimani and also a, an Iranian counterattack against uh, bases in ba uh, bases in Iraq. So that's a brand new thing. So that, of course, that's more dealing with Iran and Iraq, not so much with Syria, but that they are interconnected in in those ways. So an American response. Um, you know, America has deployed more troops to the region, but also Iraq, the Iraqi parliament has passed a non-binding resolution to have American forces leave. So all of this put together could, could be, of course, I never, I don't try to make predictions <laughs> because predictions can turn out wrong and all of these different factors come in and so on. But it, it's easy, to, it's suffice to say that the future role of America in Syria is unclear. While I personally believe that Russia's role is much clearer um, because Russia's foreign base there appears secure with little or no likelihood of conflict with a major intervening power such as the United States. And, the, and in Syria there are, is some remaining opposition or extremist holdouts in the SDF, the Turkish supported uh, Free Syrian Army, um, those in Syria's Idlib province, but it's certainly not as serious um, or as intense as it was in 20, uh, 2015 when it looked like at, at the time that the Damascus government could, could have collapsed. Furthermore, on October 22nd, 2019, Russia and Turkey signed a deal in Sochi. According to this deal, both countries are to were to permanently or to conduct 
joint patrols of the area which Turkey had recently secured in the north of the country, and they would remove and disarm Kurdish militias, according to this agreement. The agreement also committed Russia and Turkey to finding a, quote, lasting political solution to the Syrian conflicts, one of Russia's main goals for its Syria intervention. The United States and Turkey had agreed on a ceasefire deal a week before the one in Sochi, and it included similar provisions to the Sochi agreement, such as the withdrawal of Kurdish militias from the area of Turkey's Syrian operations. However, Turkey signed its deal with Russia without American participation. This shows that in Turkey, Russia will enjoy having a NATO partner in Syria which, with which it feels it can work, adding to the improved state of Russian-Turkish relations since 2015. But many questions will remain. With an apparent shrinking of America's role in Syria, how much more will Russia have to commit? How, much, how will this affect Russia's pocketbook? How long will Russia have to commit to Syria's reconstruction efforts through its Russian Center for Reconciliation of Opposing Sides? The Islamic State has been severely weakened, but will it or other extremist forces attempt to recover, forcing Russia to stay longer in Syria? Because the Islamic State is, is in a more of an insurgency now, it's lost its caliphate, and its leader uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead, but it's still... It still exists. So, so, uh, so there are all of these questions. And again, what will, what, are, what, are, however, the situation between America and Iran and Iraq goes, um, Russia will certainly have some kind of a response or some kind of a, um, some kind of a reaction to that, which may not, as of now, be directly related to Syria. And again, without the gift of prophecy. None of these many questions are possible to answer with any certainty. However, considering the complexities of the Syrian war and international involvement in that country, the medieval Italian political philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli might have wanted to say to Vladimir Putin at some point, quote, people may go to war when they will, but cannot always withdraw when they like. And I do want to put another footnote here where I... I'm kind of reluctant to put this into a thing of like where I've seen a lot of people do where Russia is always going to try to punch above its weight. Uh, they're getting involved in this and it's going to become a mess for them. It's going to become a quagmire. Um, when so far, you know, the Assad government is, is, has survived. Perhaps the most um, dire points of the Syrian civil war from the point of the Assad government, um, it has, Russia's intervention has effectively dealt with opposition and extremist forces in the country as well. And the Western governments, if they did want to talk about regime change in Syria, Assad must go and everything like that, you don't hear that as, as often. So as of right now, and again, that's as of right now, everything seems to be pointing more towards the eventual political solution that the Russian government has been has been pushing for, and it has a willing participant in many ways in Turkey, which is a NATO ally of the United States and other Western countries. So, what if people, you know, I I try to avoid the automatic thing of like, well, Russia got involved in this, and they're punching above their weight. It's not going to work out for them. It's going to be a complete disaster. It's really not been as successful as as one may think. And of course, the opinions and experts will, will agree and disagree with these types of points. 
but uh, at the moment, I would say that Russia played its hand quite quite well in the in the Syrian conflict, and it's certainly willing to to commit to that because of the uh, long term deal, long term lease, so to speak, on the the ports. They're allowed to be there till twenty sixty six. So. I'll be almost 80 years old by that point. So that is a very, that's a very long-term mission. So Russia plans to stay there for a while. That's kind of my comment on, on that sort of thing. To say that Russia is just punching above its weight and it's not going to work out, I'm reluctant to fall on that side of the, of the fence. Russia and the United States are certainly not officially fighting a new Cold War over ideology as they did in the, uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s over between capitalism and communism. However, current tensions certainly contain elements of great power competition. Both sides support different allies in Western-aligned Ukraine and within, in Syria. And Russia's Syria campaign is a form of power projection, being Russia's first expeditionary mission outside of former Soviet territory. And this has brought the Kremlin political advantage in that it has been able to affect diplomatic happenings in Syria. The direct negotiations have happened in the past between the United States and Russia um, regarding the Syrian situation. That has happened as well. I've mentioned the uh, negotiations with Turkey and so on, but... Russia and the United States have had direct talks um, in, oh, regarding the, Syria, the Syrian war and the Syrian situation. So it, Russia gets a seat at the table. And Russian forces will likely stay, as I say, for a long duration to further secure the Syrian government. And, nearly, and the nearly 50-year lease on the port of Tartus has gifted the Kremlin with a foreign base, one with air defenses in the Middle East. So if the Russian government ever wishes to respond to a future regional crisis, it has now has more capability to do so. And this echoes the Soviet Union's 5th Escadra, which used Tartus and other Arab ports during its Mediterranean deployments. Regarding Russia's increased role in international geopolitics resulting from the Syrian mission, it's fitting to conclude with comments from Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. Speaking of China's rise as a global economy, Lavrov described this event as a key to slowly breaking the, quote, unipolar world which has existed since the Cold War's end in 1991. He wrote in March 2016, quote, This clearly illustrates the undeniable plurality of development models and excludes the boring uniformity implied by the Western coordinate system. Russia's expeditionary force in Syria does the same, forcing the United States and the Western world in general to recognize the Kremlin's capability to drastically change the situation in its war-torn Middle Eastern partner. So there you have it. I believe that the, the main reasons for Russia's intervention in Syria was to try and prevent another Iraq, try and prevent another Libya, try and prevent another... I guess you could throw put Afghanistan in there too, where the American-led uh, coalitions tried to go in and remove a government and uh, Saddam Hussein in the case of Iraq, Muammar Gaddafi in the case of Libya, and the Taliban in the case of Afghanistan, go in there, destroy those governments, replace them with something that 
they want um, to rule or try to export democracy as the term has been as the term has been used in the past as well and so automatically go try to go in there do this and get everything done and everything's fixed so but unfortunately these these kinds of wars do not do not always work out and certainly in the case of Iraq and Libya that has not happened and in Afghanistan they've the American forces have been there for almost 20 years and yes the Taliban may be out of power but they are are there and they are continuing the the fight against American American forces there and Afghanistan and Iraq Afghanistan and and Libya the dream of a sort of democratic utopia has not happened so so Russia looks at this situation and looks all this time the Americans have been have invaded other countries or um, tried to change a government in a country that was uh, in opposition to the United States and what happened was chaos chaos happened it uh, so Russia looks at that and says wait a minute this is this is not this is not how it should be done so Russia decides to take the side of of the Bashar al-Assad government. And also, of course, there have been long-term relations between Russia and, and Syria, as I mentioned earlier in the, in the episode. So um, it's not to say that this is just a snap decision just to oppose the West, and that's the only reason why we're doing this. But that is, a, uh, that is part of the decision-making as well. And also, so by being able to get involved in the war, Russia has helped the Damascus government survive. And also on the side, Russia has also been able to, number two, uh, establish a military presence. And also, number three, been able to test new weapon systems in a, dare I say, relatively safe environment militarily for the Russian side. This is not a war of survival for the Russian state. So it is able to use and try out new weapon systems against targets. And in a, a brand new climate, new environment, and in a real combat situation. So, so Russia has been able to improve some weapon systems and also test them in, in a real combat situation um, and away from their own soil as well. And, uh, and finally, it's also a way of, um, it's, it's, it's gotten a foot in the door with uh, negotiating with other um, other states in the in the region and also even even western countries so as i said before russia and the united states have had direct talks on this so and so in all of that number one it helps russia try and prevent the chaos from regime change which america has done in the past uh, number two it is also expanded uh, has expanded military military reach with bases and number three, it has allowed Russia to test new weapon systems or improve existing ones. Number four, it has also been able to uh, have a seat at the table at important negotiations involving that country. So those four main, those four main things um, have, been, uh, have been of importance, uh, important results of the Russian military campaign in Syria. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode, and uh, we will be back at uh, some point in the future as well. I hope sooner rather than uh, than later. So I hope to be producing more and more episodes as time goes on. And thank you very much for listening, and we will talk to you next time.